Hi, everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm your host, Sarah Dong. I'm a combined adult and pediatric ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. I'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case, and we'll pause along the way to hear from our guest consultant. I have our usual disclaimer that all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. So I'll introduce our guest for today, Dr. Peter Krauss. Peter is a senior research scientist in the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health at Yale School of Public Health and School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. He carries out translational, epidemiological, and clinical research in the study of vector-borne disease, and he has focused on human babesiosis, Lyme disease, and relapsing fever caused by Borrelia miyamotoi. Welcome to the show, Peter. I'm so glad that you're here. How are you doing today? Very good, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Um, As everyone's favorite cultured podcast, uh, we'd love to hear about a little piece of culture or something that brings you happiness or joy. Well, I have to say my family is number one, uh, but I also am a workaholic and uh, the, the, the work that I do in tick-borne disease is certainly something I enjoy very much and spend a lot of time doing. In terms of hobbies, I don't have too many. I do like, I like walking. Uh, I like classical music. Uh, I certainly love reading, but uh, I don't get a chance to read novels too much anymore, although I want to get back to that. Yeah, I've been trying to read more. I like set myself a goal this year. I uh, haven't been as good the past couple of weeks, so I, I rented myself a new book from the library to get me back on track. Um, all right, so today our console question is about a 65-year-old woman with fatigue and fever. So I'll give you a little bit of the history. So today our patient, as I said, she's 65. She has a history of pancreatic cancer and had a partial pancreatectomy and splenectomy five years ago. Uh, hypertension, and has had a remote appendectomy and C-section. She initially presented with profound fatigue, fever, and headache for about one to two weeks. A few days into her symptoms at the beginning, she did go to a local urgent care, had a workup at that time, including chest x-ray, EKG, and a UA urine culture. And although the records aren't available, the patient mentioned that she was given a brief course of nitroferentoin for a possible UTI. Her symptoms of fatigue and headache still persisted though, and at this point she was having fevers up to about 101 or 102 headache, and then this ongoing just persistent fatigue. And so she decided to come to the hospital for further evaluation. In the ED here, she was febrile to 102.9 and tachycardic, but her blood pressure and respiratory status were stable. And on physical exam, she did not have any obvious rashes. Um, In fact, she had a normal cardiorespiratory and abdominal exam as well, a normal neurologic exam without any deficits. And I have some initial labs available, which included a chemistry with hyponatremia with a sodium of 132. Her creatinine was slightly elevated to 1.1 from her baseline of about 0.8. On her CBC, her white count was 7,000. Her hemoglobin was 9.5 and platelets were about 130. Her LFTs were slightly abnormal. Her total bilirubin was 1.2. Her AST was 200, and her ALT was 300, and her ALKFOS was 120. 
And then other than that, she had a troponin, a TSH, a lactate, and an HIV test that were negative or normal, um, and blood cultures, which are cooking in the lab. So here we have this woman, fever, headache, fatigue, along with these lab findings concerning for hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and some mildly abnormal LFTs. I want to see what you're worried about here and what are some important questions you have in mind thinking about uh, epidemiologic exposures. Yeah, yes. Well, I would say that um, when, when initially things broadly, when, when you see a febrile patient and the broad categories of, of uh, in the differential include infection, of course, cancer, rheumatologic disease and inflammatory bowel disease. But this is a patient who's developed fever in the summertime. And so that makes us think more of summertime illness, uh, perhaps due to summer uh, due to an enterovirus infection, for example. But it also certainly, uh, at least here in the Northeast, we need to think of tick-borne disease. Tick-borne diseases, uh, if we list them in order of frequency in the Northeast, uh, Lyme disease would certainly be number one. Um, but about 90% of the time, we see an EM rash, and this patient did not have a rash. The next two in alphabetical order, anaplasmosis and babesiosis, are certainly less common then uh, Lyme disease, perhaps a t- about a tenth is fre- frequent. And, and those two are it's close in terms of their frequency. So 30,000 cases of Lyme a year uh, in the United States, uh, probably two to 4,000 or so of babesiosis anaplasmosis. In Connecticut, babesiosis is actually a little more common. In Massachusetts, anaplasma a little more, but they're similar. And certainly in this patient, when we look at the labs, and we'll discuss, I guess we'll discuss this further, uh, certainly the hemolytic anemia uh, would point to, certainly one would think very much of babesiosis, or certainly one have pursued that. Uh, other tick-borne diseases are Borrelia miyamotoi, which is a more recently discovered Borrelia, or distantly related to Lyme disease, but uh, characteristically, and although not always, causing relapsing fever. And this patient has had persistent fever, not really relapsing fever. And then there are other tick-borne diseases which are, are relatively rare, including Powassan virus that leads to encephalitis, uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, tularemia, and ehrlichiosis. So uh, the epidemiologic history is, is of some, certainly of some importance and um, or great importance. Um, and you mentioned that you were going to uh, discuss that a little further, what, what the epidemiologic factors yeah. were here. Um, yeah. So we get a little bit more history. Our patient lives in the Northeast U.S. with her husband. She has a pet dog named Babs. Hmm. She works as a third grade teacher. And her last travel was to North Carolina about three weeks ago to visit her daughter's family. Um, she and her husband do like to walk outside on some paths near their home Um, which is surrounded by some trees and brush. Um, They also like to spend weekends in coastal areas like Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And she doesn't have a clear memory of a specific tick bite, but mentions that she's certainly been treated for Lyme disease in the past and recovered without issues. And so you mentioned some of your concerns on the differential diagnosis. What are your thoughts on diagnostic testing that we're going to ask for now? Well, I would say that uh, epidemiologic history is important to take. If a person doesn't live in or travel to a tick endemic area, uh, then the chances for tick-borne disease, of course, much reduced. But this patient um, lives in the Northeast, uh, vacations occasionally at Cape Cod, and I guess had a recent trip there. So certainly that that puts her at risk for tick-borne disease, and specifically 
for ixodes scapularis uh, tick-borne disease. Uh, ixodes scapularis transmits the diseases that we talked about, at least Lyme disease, babesiosis, anaplasmosis, and Borrelia miyamotoi, as well as Powassan virus. The fact that she did not recall a specific tick bite is not particularly uh, important because these ticks are quite small and, and often missed. Uh, she also traveled to North Carolina. These tick-borne diseases are not particularly that I mentioned are not particularly common there or not that don't exist there. Rocky Mountain spotted fever is uh, found in North Carolina, and that would make one think a little bit about that. But um, her epidemiologic history is consistent with uh, the tick-borne disease differential that we just spoke of. One thing we can do, I, I think, you know, obviously the laboratory uh, confirmation of Babesiosis, Anaplasmosis, Brillium Miyamotoi are very important because there is not, uh, there's no uh, pathognomonic finding, that, you know, on physical, uh, by history or physical for these diseases. Uh, of course, Lyme disease, 90% of the time you have an erythema migrans rash, which is if you've lived in a Lyme disease endemic area, you and your physician will be familiar with that. Although occasionally the erythema migrans rash will occur in, a, in an area you know you can't easily see, such as in the hair, for example. So really, for Lyme disease, we are counting on on the EM rash in most cases. That's a clinical diagnosis usually. Whereas for these other illnesses, anaplasma, babesia, Borrelia motoi being the top three, the laboratory uh, findings are very important. So one can initially do screening tests if you're considering these conditions. And this patient did have a CBC, and this patient had anemia, a hemolytic anemia, evidence of that, uh, and that would certainly point to babesia. If the patient had a leukopenia, which the patient did not, it would make you think more of anaplasma uh, because that organism invades um, white cells uh, and specifically neutrophils. The thrombocytopenia is seen with uh, all of these diseases uh, that, well, anaplasma, babesia, perhaps with Miyamotoi. And of course, there's slightly elevated liver enzymes, and that's very characteristic of babesiosis, but also could be seen with anaplasmosis. So I think, uh, in a sense, the, the lab did do screening tests, and it, certainly the findings, and especially the anemia, would make me think, uh, certainly want to uh, do further testing, specific testing for babesiosis. So one of the initial tests one can do, it's simple, it's relatively rapid, is a thin blood smear. And on thin blood smear, uh, for, for babesia, you would be looking for intraerythrocytic uh, uh, forms, uh, the ring form, which is similar to that of Plasmodium falciparum, uh, as well as occasionally one, or rarely one will see a Maltese cross. It's a cross-like structure, and that uh, would be pathognomonic for Babesia, uh, but we don't see that too often. But the ring form is the, is the most likely um, finding. And, and you have to, in some cases, the parasitemia may be low, and you really have to do, officially, one should do two to 300 fields which is a pretty, uh, labor, you know, it's a labor-intensive approach, but uh, if you really want to rule it out, that's you should be doing a two to 300 microscopic fields. Now, one can also, on a blood smear, look for moriello, which are um, characteristic of anaplasma. They consist of a, a, a the anaplasma are ingested by a, a, a neutrophil. They go into a phagolysosome, but rather than being killed there, like most bacteria, they actually multiply 
And that leads to this morulus structure, which is sort of a round or oval structure within the neutrophil. And that would be suggestive or diagnostic of, of anaplasma. Finally, uh, Borrelia miyamotoi, which I mentioned, is unlike Lyme disease, which is mainly found in fixed tissue, Borrelia miyamotoi is found in blood and in relatively high concentrations uh, at times. So uh, certainly during the febrile uh, episodes. Uh, with, with miyamotoi, you have fever uh, for a day or two or three, and then it goes away, and then it resurfaces a week or two later. So during those febrile episodes, you may see spirochetes in the, in the blood. So a thin smear is a very excellent initial specific test, or it it certainly increases your specificity in terms of what you're looking for. Of course, uh, polymerase chain reaction, PCR, for uh, each of these is um, the most uh, probably sensitive or certainly more sensitive and and specific than thin blood smear. So if you're considering these, uh, many, some physicians, you know, I, I, it's handled in different ways. Some, some people will start with a thin smear. Others will just go to the PCR. Usually, I think a thin smear, <clears throat> if you have a skilled microscopist, can, uh, can, is, is a little more rapid and, and generally pretty sensitive. So that's probably what I would start with. And then if that wasn't um, confirmatory I'd, or didn't you know, really point to the specific organism in mind, I'd probably go on to PCR. Another laboratory test uh, that people do uh, commonly um, is antibody testing. But I think we need to remember that antibodies do not uh, generally uh, appear until about two weeks into the acute illness. Now, in the case of babesiosis, uh, one, of the, one of the clinical characteristics, which I guess we'll get to, is some people have fulminant disease after you know they get fever and then they're very sick after a few days, usually immunocompromised individuals. But a more typical picture is a, what this patient had, a week or two of sort of smoldering fever, nothing really uh, alarming, but at the same time, this persistence. And so in this case, this patient has gone two weeks, and if you did an antibody test, it might very well be positive. But of course, the other problem with the antibody testing is that you, you, you can have residual antibody a year or two or three later. So that doesn't really prove that, you're, that there's true, true, and unrelated, uh, that you don't have that. That is, patient does have antibody, patient does have fever, uh, but the two are not related because the uh, infection occurred uh, quite a while uh, earlier. And so she does have these labs collected. Her uh, subsequent CBC, her anemia was slightly worsened with the hemoglobin and the eights. Um, but you get the call that the smear does in fact demonstrate babesia with about 8% parasitemia. Um, and I, I thought I would add this. I, when I teach about babesia, kind of mentioned that it helps to think of it sort of like a North American malaria mm-hmm. um, because it's, you know, invading the red blood cells. And I think the actually the clinical characteristics can often be pretty mm-hmm. similar, but they obviously have very different epidemiologic exposures. And then, like you were saying, um, the intraerythrocytic ring forms would look similar to um, Plasmodium falciparum, but the sometimes I know that the Plasmodium ones have more of this like brown pigment in the ring, ring forms mm-hmm. than maybe Babesia mm-hmm. would. Um, and Babesia, we can sometimes see extracellular forms. And then like you said, the Maltese cross we would expect with Babesia, but not malaria. So I don't know if that helps other people, but as someone who did not uh, uh, grow up or learn about tick-borne disease from the Northeast, that helped me remember things a lot. And so her primary team had started doxycycline early on due to the concern for tick-borne disease. 
And now we know she has babesiosis. How do we treat her? Okay, let me, let me just follow up actually on one of your points about the malaria issue. Um, it, it, you know, it can present in a similar fashion. And uh, when you see ring forms, let's say your microscopist is not, you know, um, so skilled or you can easily make that differential. So I would go back and ask the patient, have you traveled to any malarious area? And if they, you know, and, and 90%, 95% of the time, the answer is going to be no, in which case, you, you know, that pretty much seals it. But however, uh, I think that's a good question to ask because you, you don't want to treat uh, malaria with a topical. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, so I think that's a, a useful, a useful uh, follow-up yeah. <laughs> uh, a question to, to ask. Uh, now, I will also comment on the initial uh, use of doxycycline, which is not unreasonable. Um, but um, uh, doxycycline, of course, will work against um, Borrelia burgdorferi, that is a Lyme agent. It will work against Borrelia miyamotoi, and it will also uh, be effective for uh, anaplasma. But it will not treat babesiosis. So uh, sometimes physicians will treat empirically. And if the patient is not responding to the doxy, that should be a further clue that you're dealing, that you could very well be dealing with babesiosis. Uh, in terms of treatment, the treatment, the recommended treatment is atobicone and azithromycin. The atobicone, 750 milligrams given every 12 hours. The azithromycin, 500 milligrams on day one, and then 250 milligrams uh, daily for the next five to seven or seven days. And the azithromycin dose can be uh, raised, it can be doubled if you're dealing with a, if you have a patient who's immunocompromised, as this patient is. Certainly, when, when the results came back, uh, that the Bezier were present in the red cells. Uh, you have a patient here who had cancer and who, more importantly, uh, that was five years ago, no longer on chemotherapeutic agents, I assume. But um, the fact is that the patient has no spleen. And asplenic individuals are certainly an increased risk of severe disease and even death. So uh, this means that in this patient, I'd, we still go ahead. We still go ahead with uh, atopicone azithromycin as initial therapy. And although the the, the parastemia is high, um, she's not yet an ICU candidate, at least from the history. Um, it's something one would certainly think about. And. In the, in the old days, quote-unquote, before uh, 2000, when, when the first report of azithromycin and tobacone came out, we compared that combination with clindamycin and quinine, it was found that in patients without life-threatening disease, but with mild, moderate, or even relatively severe disease hospitalized but not life-threatening, that atobicone and azithromycin worked very well. But the drug, the clindamycin quinine, had been used for many years. Uh, it was the standard drug initially because the tobacone azithromycin wasn't available. So, uh, and because that study that was done in two thousand uh, in two thousand was not uh, did not include people who had life threatening disease, and purposely so, you wouldn't want to use a new combination in that setting. Clindamycin and quinine was recommended for very severe disease, whereas the tobacone azithromycin for mild to moderate disease. And then there had been a, there's been a recent study where the, the investigators used atopicone azithromycin in patients with life-threatening disease, in ICU patients, and the outcome was really quite good. So, and, and there's also anecdotal evidence for that uh, as well. So as a result of that, the Infectious Society of America that just uh, recently published uh, Babesiosis Guidelines 
uh, recommended that atovaquone azithromycin be uh, given as first-line drug for any patient with babesiosis. But, there, but that alternative uh, of clindamycin and quinine needs to, be, uh, needs to be kept in the back pocket because if patients aren't responding to atovaquone azithromycin, then you want to uh, move on to clindamycin and quinine. I will mention that quinine especially, clindamycin quinine has a very high uh, rate of side effects, something on the order of three quarters of patients in that 2000 study, uh, and um, and severe uh, severe enough problems wh- where about a third of patients actually have to either uh, decrease the dose or the dose has to, or the, the drug has to be di- uh, discontinued. So that's why atovaquone azithromycin, since it works as well and has fewer side effects, that's the logic for that. So in this patient, I would certainly go with. Um, Go with the tobacones and thromycin with very close monitoring. Yeah. And I think hopefully it'll start transitioning. I feel like when we're, even for me, when we were in medical school, you know, we were still talking about clinoquinine. And I, I, I'm glad you brought up the guidelines. I just want to emphasize that that change is like officially in the new guidelines, which we'll post the link to. Um, but I think people are used to having the reflex response of clinoquinine Um when in reality, we're really thinking about azithro and atovaquone sort of first line. Um, And so before we jump back to our case, I thought we could pause just to see if there's any other sort of intro information about babesiosis that you could tell us about. And do you think, you know, do you think of her case as a typical presentation um, or any other pearls that you have? Sure. In terms of clinical presentation, I mean, she had a very typical presentation. As I mentioned, the one to two weeks of sort of low grade or smoldering infection, uh, smoldering fever um, and uh, fatigue, uh, very just a almost classic uh, presentation. The most common symptoms of the BCR fever, fatigue, headache, uh, and then chills and sweats. Uh, I didn't hear about chills and sweats, but she had fever, fatigue, and headache. And um, uh, and as I mentioned, it was a slowly progressive uh, uh, process. Um, other symptoms you can get are arthralgia, myalgia, anorexia, nausea, and cough. Um, so I would say the presentation was, was quite typical. One thing I'll just interject here, since you asked about sort of other pearls, um, one of the, guideline, one of the uh, points in the guideline, sort of new points, was the use the treatment of patients who have just a positive antibody, just in other words, or even patients who have fever and a positive antibody. Treatment is not recommended in that in those settings because it could represent past disease, and it's simple enough to get a smear and or PCR. So treating on the basis of antibody alone is not recommended. Uh, so our patient was started on azithromycin and atovaquone. Uh, but during her hospitalization, for the first couple of days, she continued to have fevers to 102. Her headaches were persistent, and she continued to have anemia in the 8 to 9 range. And so we often talk about red blood cell exchange transfusion. I was wondering if you could tell the listeners about when we should be considering that, um, what are sort of the patient factors that would make us lean towards thinking about that as part of her management. Yes, that's a that's a, an important therapeutic modality, which by which unfortunately has not really been studied well. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, we had <laughs> through from a number of a number of problems in medicine, but this has not been. Uh, it, it, there certainly have been studies looking at exchange transfusion, but there's not been a prospective placebo controlled trial to show that the exchange transfusion clearly is beneficial. 
um, generally the procedure is safe, but it's still quite a, it's quite a bit, you know, of, uh, obviously expense, um, and it's not without any risk, but it really, it, it's something that at least anecdotally people feel can be life-saving. And, uh, the, the current ind- indications for, uh, trans- exchange transfusion, at least the t- 2020 Babesios guidelines are a parasitemia greater than 10%, or a patient with severe hemolytic anemia or severe pulmonary renal or, or hepatic compromise. This is, there have been limited case reports with good results from the exchange. The question always is, would they have done just as well without? Um, but I, it's certainly in a patient with a high paras, you know, parasitemia greater than 10% or severe clinical uh, manifestations, I would, I would certainly exchange. Uh, and, and especially, of course, in, in immunocompromised individuals. And most of the individuals who are going to get that sick will probably be immunocompromised. So here we, you know, and I think it's, it's clinical judgment. I mean, here's a patient not, not getting better, but at the same time not getting a lot worse. And uh, with an 8% parasitemia, which is kind of, you know, borderline. And it, there have been uh, two papers that have shown that parasitemia greater than 4%, uh, increases the risk of complications and death. And, and also there's been other papers showing parasitemia greater than 10% is associated with increased complications uh, and death. So uh, on the other hand, and this is another pearl, I, I suppose, there, have been, there are patients who have been uh, reported who've had, who have died with only a 1% or 2% parasitemia. And I, I think we really do not understand why that we can more hypotheses for why someone with a high parasitemia would, would you know, uh, uh, get into real trouble, but we certainly don't understand that. Um, it may be cytokine storm, uh, it, you know, uh, but we that really is an area that needs to be uh, investigated further. So bottom line is exchange transfusion should not be given to a person, uh, even a hospitalized individual, uh, without these parameters of so a high parasitemia and uh, with a um, uh, or and or severe clinical presentation from a an anemia pulmonary renal or hepatic standpoint. Yeah, um, and our patient was sort of briefly transferred to the ICU in anticipation that maybe we would head towards exchange transfusion, but she, as you kind of mentioned, was relatively stable. Her parasitemia started to come down. Um, and she did not ultimately need an exchange transfusion. And like you said, I, th- I think that happens a lot where patients are right on that border of, are they sick enough to really need this? Is it actually going to improve them? Do they need time? So um, I think sort of the next question for this patient is, what would be your tentative plan for duration of therapy? Right. Uh, duration of therapy, in most cases, is pretty straightforward. You have a patient who um, either in, in the office comes in with babesiosis, is doing reasonably well. I mean, not in other words, doesn't have pulmonary compromise, renal compromise. Uh, the parasitemia is relatively modest, 1% to 3%. They're feeling some fatigue. You can treat them with uh, out, as an outpatient with the atopicone azithromycin and have the patient call if they get worse. Um, in patients who are immunocompetent, and let's say some patients, especially those over the age of 50, are more likely to have more severe disease. Let's say they're hospitalized, but they're not showing any complications, and they, they're not in their immunocompetent. Those individuals, once they uh, do better, 
um, you, you, you want to see the parasitemia decrease. I mean, I, I think that you certainly want that, but you don't necessarily have to keep them in the hospital until there's, you know, there's no, there's no organisms on, on smear. And, and you don't even, as an outpatient, as an immunocompetent individual who's had a mild to moderate disease, uh, do, you know, continue to do smears till they're negative. So pretty much what we say is for immunocompetent individuals, it's good to follow smears in the hospital. But once they're better and they're going home, there's, you know, they, they need the, you have to instruct the patient to call you if they're feeling worse uh, or if they're not resolving. And they should resolve in a matter of uh, a few days usually. I mean, it's or they, they are, say it this way, patients will uh, have fever, fatigue and and and, you know, sometimes joint pain, whatever that this will last for a couple of days. The fatigue can actually last for a, a month or two, but that's not an indication to do like a, a repeat smear. So generally what happens is uh, they, they will, you'll see a decrease in the, in the uh, parasitemia. And, um, and if they're doing well clinically, that's it. You don't need to really follow them further. But it's a different situation with immunocompromised individuals. And of course, there, there are various degrees of immunocompromise. And so who are these people? Uh, patients at the extremes of age, less than two months of age, older than 50. Uh, patients who, and, and by the way, the patients less than two months of age sometimes have perinatal transmission. A mother's infected, the baby gets infected. That's rare. Uh, but and actually, the other, more, a little more common is uh, transfusion transmission. We didn't talk about this, but there are, in terms of transmission, the overwhelming number uh, of cases are due to tick transmission, but you can also get transfusion transmission. Uh, and individuals, about 40% of um, adults, I'm sorry, about 20% of adults will be uh, asymptomatic with this infection. So they will, some of those patients will go and give blood and they'll transmit the organism through through the blood supply. And um the individuals who receive this in the hospital usually have comorbidities, congestive failure, uh, you know, lung disease. They're, they're in for surgery for something, may have cancer. And so the mortality rate in, in these patients who uh, are acquire the infection through transfusion is something on the order of 20 percent, 18 to 20 percent. So transmission, I mentioned tick transmission, transfusion transmission, congenital transmission, and there's been one case where an organ transplantation led to babesiosis. In any event, in these, so we have this, so I, I just to go through the list further in terms of immunocompromise, asplenia, certainly cancer, especially B-cell lymphoma. Individuals who can't make antibody are special category, and we'll talk about, I'll talk about that briefly, HIV, AIDS, uh, immunosuppressive drugs, Comorbid, comorbid conditions like chronic lung or heart disease, um, and as I mentioned, transfusion-acquired babesiosis. <clears throat> the individuals who have evidence of impaired uh, antibody production, such as those with B-cell lymphoma or who have received rituximab, and most B-cell lymphoma patients will have received rituximab, which knocks out B-cells. Those patients, uh, they can have they may have fulminant disease. Usually they have, you know, it's controlled, but it's very difficult to eradicate the uh, infection completely. And, and so, uh, and there are patients who have gone a year with uh, intermittent, you know, relapsing because the, you know, this one combination of antibiotics, usually it's not given for long enough, although occasionally you do have, there is resistance. Uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. It's these patients who are immunocompromised uh, can 
persist for quite a while. Now, interesting, this patient had asplenia. Those patients tend to have more severe acute disease, but because generally their B, their, at least this is a hypothesis, that their B cells are in relatively reasonable shape, they usually don't you know, have persistence. But the B cell lymphoma patients, uh, the rituximab patients, the patients who have HIV AIDS, these are patients who often will have persistence. And it's very important First of all, you want to continue to monitor them till they're smear negative. And then uh, in, in the patients, uh, again, these uh, the category of sort of severe immunocompromised patients should, should be based on a study that, that we did a few years ago, should be uh, colleagues and, and I, these patients probably should be treated for at least six weeks and with the last two weeks being having negative smears. I, I will say that there are patients who, ha- who meet those criteria and still relapse. So you can't even count on that completely. But I would say in these patients who are discharged with, like this patient's discharge, still might be discharged with a very low-grade parasitemia. That would be okay if clinically all right. But you want to be getting, you know, depending, uh, you know, maybe after every two or three days or maybe weekly, you want to get smears. And if there's still parasitemia, uh, then you want to continue therapy. Um, and, um, again, if they're highly immunocompromised, um, it's just better to just treat them six weeks, I think, and with those negative smears for two weeks. Uh, one other thing is the use of PCR as a tool, diagnostic or monitoring tool. PCR can remain positive. It usually does for several months, even in immunocompetent individuals, even treated individuals. And their immunocompetent people have been PCR positive, asymptomatic but PCR positive for as long as a year. And uh, immunocompromised individuals have been uh, positive for as long as two years. And so I think PCR, one has to realize that may be the case. And PCR is not, and is in one sense, an optimal tool. However, quantitative PCR is certainly as promised to, to, um, uh, to be used in the future. Uh, you know, if that can be... We, can mo- see what the modeling shows, see what, you know, it, there may be a threshold level at which you can stop and, and feel feel good about. But for now, PCR can be, you know, can and sometimes should be used as a monitoring tool. But I would say, it, you know, primarily we're looking at smear. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that PCR question, because I feel like it comes up a lot, particularly in immunocompromised hosts, and should we use it or not? So right. Well, we're kind of getting close to the end, but before I sort of finish up, I wanted to see if there's anything else you think we missed or um, additional learning points. I can just say a few things um, just to sort of go back to more generally. This infection is caused by a protozoa in the, in the phylum AP complexa, which is the same phylum that malaria is found. The genus Babesia infects and lysis red cells. Uh, I, we talked about transmission. This is a worldwide disease that's found primarily in temperate zones, although not exclusively. There are more than 100 Babesia species that infect a wide variety of wild and domestic animals, uh, uh, eight of which infect humans. Uh, the great majority of cases are uh, due to Babesia microti. That's a Babesia that the natural reservoir is the white-footed mouse and the vector is uh, the Ixodes hard-bodied ticks, um, and in our neck of the woods, Ixodes scapularis. Uh, it's found in the United States in the Northeast and the Northern Midwest. There are two other species in the United States, Babesia duncani, found in the Far West. There have been fewer than 50 cases of that, so it's not nearly as common uh, as uh, my, Babesia microti. And then there's Babesia divergens-like agent, which has been described in four 
for for different states, and is really not in terms of health burden not particularly significant at this time. So I let me just finish by saying that in terms of the biggest challenges of babesiosis, uh, it really should be considered in the differential diagnosis of febrile patients, especially well certainly only in areas where well area I should say endemic areas, or if someone has had a blood transfusion within the previous six months, you need to think about it in those cases and. Uh, the biggest challenge is just thinking about it, being aware of the disease and realizing it can produce this febrile, febrile illness. You know, certainly watch being very closely monitoring immunocompromised patients and treating them with IV antibiotic, atovacone, azithromycin, uh, uh, you know, uh, treating with uh, oral atovacone, IV, azithro, um, and um, looking to the possibility of, of alternative drugs. Uh, the genetic basis of resistance, there appears to be inducible resistance, and that can lead to failure of atopicones of thermicin, although there's been clinical failure with clindamycin and quinine as well. And I think finally, um, there are just a number of areas that, you know, where we do not have answers and we need, we need further research. And certainly one of those I would say is that we mentioned before is the whole question of exchange transfusion. But in addition, I think, um, we need some. We need further uh, antibiotic for immunocompromised patients. We need some uh, new antibiotic in addition to the the two combinations that we have. And and there are other combinations that have been suggested, but they have not been um, prospectively looked at. But uh, for example, atovacone, azithro, and clindamycin uh, may be helpful if you have a patient's not responding to either of those two combinations. And uh, atovacone, azithro, clindamycin, and quinine has been given, and uh, also atovacone, proguanolin, etc. It's uh, it's certainly a, a major disease. It's one that uh, we just simply do need further do need further research. But the good news is that I think in, in the majority of cases, patients are treated and they they they're fine. They they wind up doing well. Well, thank you so much uh, for sharing your passion about Fabesia <laughs> um, and tick-borne <laughs> disease, and I think we have taught the learners a ton about Babesia. So hopefully they'll remember this, even if it's not necessarily in their neck of the woods. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate your invite. Thank you everyone for listening. I thought this was a great summer topic to cover. You can find the consult notes, which are the written compliments of the show on our website, febrilepodcast.com. There will also be infographics housed there on the website, as well as Twitter and Instagram. Please just send me a message or email me if you have any suggestions for topics or guests on future shows, or if you'd like to help out with a future episode. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.